0: Hey friends, it is Chris Lowen here again with another episode from our Outside the Walls podcast. In this podcast, we have a lot of conversations with people of different perspectives from what many of us would normally encounter on a day-to-day basis. And as we have mentioned before... The ideas and the topics that we discuss in each of these episodes are there for us to consider, but there is no expectation or pressure for everyone to agree with everything that is said in each episode. The desire is for in this podcast is for healthy dialogue from a posture of curiosity without feeling the pressure to agree with everything that is said in each episode. Alright, so in today's episode, we have a friend of ours on the show named Amy Bird. Amy Bird is a well-known author and speaker. She has written several books, and her two most recent books are called The Sexual Reformation and Recovering from Biblical Womanhood and Manhood. Actually, it's the other way around. Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. She lives in Frederick, in Maryland, with her husband and her three children. And you can find her writing on her website, which is amybird.com, and you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram, and the links for those will be posted in the description below. But in this conversation, we talk very generally about purity culture and the way that it has affected the way that we talk about manhood and womanhood. And then we venture into what a healthy siblingship might look like in the church. Now, Amy has talked a lot about this. She has a lot to say. And so these are very important topics, and you're going to hear a bit about Amy's journey and how she's had to wrestle with these topics. And so please, without further ado, welcome to the show, the one and only Amy Bird. Amy Bird, thank you for coming on our Outside the World podcast. Chris Dirksen and I are thrilled that you can be with us today. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, and it's a pleasure to talk to you both. Whom I've named Chris uh, Squared. Yes.
0: it's <laughs> a
2: good nickname for us.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe just to start things off, Amy, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and what are some of the things that you're doing?
1: Sure. I am from Maryland, and I am an author and a speaker, um, which kind of happened accidentally, really. Um early, I married young at like 21 years old. And, um, I thought, you know, both my husband and I come from divorced homes. Um, he came from a Roman Catholic background. I came from a Southern Baptist background and, um, we wanted to take our faith seriously and, um, figure out what we were. (laughs) And so in, in that search, I also was trying to figure out, uh, you know, what does this whole adulting Christian thing look like? You know, Um, what does spiritual formation, discipleship look like? And uh, I just had a really, I think, a vigor to learn more about God. And um, I found it to be an obstacle that I was a woman with that kind of passion and those kind of questions. And at first I just thought, oh, well, maybe it's because, you know, women – don't realize that we're theologians too. Like what we think about God really matters in our, in our everyday life. And so I thought maybe if there were more tools to help women think that way, um, I could get this ball rolling, <laughs> right? Because the women's ministries that I was in, or um, that I was seeing the books marketed to women's ministries, they were uh, very kind of fruity. you know, they just they weren't the same quality as the books marketed towards the men. And so I was just trying to kind of step in that gap a little bit, but just as a lay person. um, So my quest really in writing was to provide what I was looking for and start some conversations and to learn myself more about discipleship and what it means and what it looks like and, and how can we grow as disciples, as men and women in the church. And um, that took me on a pretty long journey. I don't know. I'm, I'm finishing up my seventh book now. And I've oh. been invited to speak all over the you know, country and outside of the country some. And, and so um, noth- none of that was an ambition of mine or something that I planned to do with my life. But um, I was given some opportunities. And I guess just a lot of curiosity um, led me here.
0: That's so awesome. So, Amy, can you tell us, like, what are some of the recent books that you've been writing?
1: Okay, my most recent books, I'd say my last three most recent books were uh, Why Can't We Be Friends, and it's about male and female friendship in the church, Um, recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, and uh, the sexual reformation, which is kind of, uh, sexual reformation is... Using the Song of Songs and a biblical theology is just looking at what is the meaningfulness behind our sexes. We have these wars between what women can do and what women can't do. And you've got, you know, complementarianism versus egalitarianism. But I kind of wanted to get behind a lot of that um, outside stuff and look at what is the beauty uh, and meaningfulness in our sexuality? Why does that matter? Uh, what's beautiful about it. And then, you know, how can we then apply uh, this as an invitation now as men and women in the church?
3: Hmm.
2: Okay. Wow. now we have to set up another podcast interview because I want to talk about that book
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> for for today. We've got to just keep it focused because man, a whole bunch of interesting questions come to my mind for that, but we'd like to focus a little bit in on uh, some of the thinking you've done around and the book that you wrote but even bigger than the book, but just some of your overall thoughts and experiences, you know, from recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. What is the main premise of that book, and why did you write it?
1: Whew. Well, you know how I said I stumbled into this whole writing thing to begin with, and at first, um, you know, I was writing in the, the, the circles that were really reading my work were kind of like Reformed uh, evangelical, and I was a Presbyterian at the time and I think I did kind of step in and fill in an an interesting gap too between lay people and academics. I I ended up making a lot of academic friends and connections um, and I I, I have a bit of that kind of thirst in me but I really wanted to um, write as a lay person you know and stay in in that area Um, but as I began writing more about women in the church, you know, at first it's like, welcome. Yes. You know, women need to be thinkers too. And yay, let's have this woman come speak to our women, you know, all over the place. And, um, but then, oh, no sh- <laughs> yeah, right. Just the women. <laughs> um, but then I started, there were just so many things that I started noticing, which really led to my next book and my next book and my next book. So like, why can't we be friends Was because I was finding how, um, how I was being treated, almost like a threat in a lot of spaces because I was a woman. And and because uh, I was a woman, I was left out of a lot of different conversations or even just, you know, when I decided to write that book, because it's something that I didn't even want to touch really, because I knew it was going to be controversial, sadly, um, was when I was leaving a dinner and we scattered out back doors and front door of the restaurant. So the people that I ended up walking out the back door with were uh, men. And I was in a city at night in the rain and my car was parked down the alley, um, couple blocks away and no one offered me a ride, uh, because I'm a woman. And so here I am walking and these were like friends. <laughs> so I'm walking, um, by myself at night in the rain in an alley in a strange city thinking to myself this is insane you know and my husband would be so pissed off right now if he knew this yeah. was happening, you know like, <laughs> so uh that led me to write you know and I always in my books want to write an invitation to something beautiful you know it's not just a critique i want it to um you know we're missing the beauty <laughs> and so that's what i want to get at and so after that, I started getting a lot more pushback in my circles, mm-hmm. and um, but not actual critique of what was wrong about what I said. You know, I wanted to write about the beauty of siblingship in in the church,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is the way Paul most often refers to us in Scripture yes. uh, as brothers and sisters. And what does that mean? And how do you treat one another that way? Um, and As I'm up against it, I'm just seeing more and more of this whole culture of, quote-unquote, biblical manhood and womanhood, which is a movement that started uh, over 30 years ago by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mm -hmm. Um, It was literally called that. Yes, CBMW. and uh, They... They just pump out so many resources. And, you know, it started over 30 years ago, that they got together and wrote something called the Danvers Statement okay. about men and women in the church. And they wanted to battle what they called evangelical feminism that was going to take over the church and, mm-hmm. you know, it's ruining society. And this is why we have all this, you know, all these bad marriages and all everything going away. Ar- and so it sounded really good, right? Like biblical manhood and womanhood. And so they were newer in my early years of marriage and I thought that's what I want to be. I want to be a biblical woman, right? And um I want to have a good marriage and uh not end in divorce like our parents. And so, you know, I was reading these resources. They put together a book with uh it was edited by Wayne Grudem and John Piper, very popular evangelical figures. Yes. Um uh, they are part you know part of this whole thing, and they had all kinds of contributors in this book, and it's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood read that book in my early twenties, stubbed my toe over a couple areas in it, thinking, well, they've got to know more than I do, you know i'm who am I um so after going through all that I've gone through now and um when I say critique that I've gotten, that's like really downplaying it. Like I've gotten bad treatment, um, harassment, bad treatment, things like this. And so I thought, I need to look into this movement more. And even before that, I mean, if I really want to rewind things here, um, in 2016, I started noticing with some other women um that a lot of their resources and they're just pumping out resources and women's ministry, men's ministry, they are responsible for the ESV translation of scripture, uh, where they use their complementarian interpretations to affect Mm -hmm. the translations. Um, They've got, you know, women's Bibles, men's Bibles, you know, study Bibles. Um, They're speaking all over the place. They're very connected with the gospel coalition and crossway publishers. And, you know, it's just the seminaries, you know, it's just pumping out everywhere. And uh, I start going back to some of these books because I didn't really like reading their books because, like I said, the women's stuff just wasn't really uh, very deep, I didn't think. But I start realizing oh, okay, they're teaching that within the Trinity, in the Godhead, that the Son is eternally subordinate to the father. It's called yes. eternal subordination of the son or eternal functional subordination of the son. And they say that, oh, while the father and son and Holy Spirit are equal in being, however, they have these functional roles that are like ontological, like according to their essence of who they are, and which is not what a role is. A role is playing a part, you know, it comes from the theater, but um, they use it as this, this essence. And um, and then they so they're teaching something that's unorthodox about the Trinity. It's not in line with like the Nicene Creed. And then they say, likewise, women in her role, even though she's equal in value to the man, is subordinate to men. And so this is what the basis of all their teaching is. And so in 2016, like uh, Rachel Miller, she was writing about it a little bit in complementarian circles, not getting much uh, reaction from anyone. And I'm like, I I can't take this anymore. This is really really bad. Uh, you know, this is damaging teaching about who God is and about who we, man and woman are. Um, so I start talking to a pastor about it, who is kind of more of an academic and has a big church, and he's a Presbyterian and with clout. And he wasn't reading these resources. And so I start reading some stuff to him, you know? And, oh my goodness, this is terrible. I'm like, will you write something on my blog about this? Because if I write it, I'm a woman. I will be dismissed. <laughs> yeah. If you write it, they're going to have to respond, you know?
2: So, certainly the Holy Spirit couldn't have revealed <laughs> truth to you.
1: <laughs> right. Better so, better than the man. Well, they're very good. At, <laughs> they were very good at dismissing me. So uh, he agrees, um, thankfully. and. I put it on my blog, and let me tell you, it's like we pulled the rope and the whole ceiling came down. The response is I mean, conferences came from it, patristic scholars weighed in and said, Yeah, this is not Nicene, this is not Orthodox. Um, Seminaries changed their courses over it. You know, all this stuff starts happening. The president of the time of CBMW ends up stepping down, but another one comes in who's supporting all the same stuff. Anyway, it says, Oh, nothing to see here. You know, you can have a broad view of the Trinity as long as you agree about the Danvers statement, which,
2: which is the one they need.
1: subordinate woman. (laughs) Yeah. like That's the most important creed is theirs. Um, so that's when I thought we have got to have some better resources and speaking into that space as a woman who was in those circles still and had some credibility still, um, I thought what I want to offer an alternative resource that uh, highlights the reciprocity of the male and female voice in scripture, um, a covenantal way of reading scripture um, instead of such a biblicist way that they read, Um, and then also just what our great honor and uh, responsibility and privileges are to one another as men and women in the church. So that's why it's called recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. It's really about restoring the dignity and personhood of man and woman in the church, and and and, and having the church rediscover, um, you know, what our purpose is. Long awesome. Story, sorry. <laughs> no,
2: that was that was an awesome answer. So, if someone, you know, if one of our, no, you go ahead, Chris. Other Chris.
0: No, no, I, I'm just wondering how would uh, okay, so you talked about uh, uh, CBMW how would they define maybe just to help our listeners understand how would they yeah. define biblical manhood versus okay biblical- yeah, I
1: can read it for you they have they have definition in the book okay. Okay. um and they say at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead provide for and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And then at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's (sighs) differing relationships. So there's nothing actually about a woman that she contributes. It's all about puffing up the man. Yeah. Benevolent,
2: the... I mean, it's just benevolent so condescending.
1: responsibility to lead, yes. As,
2: yeah. That we as men, it is our benevolent. <laughs> like my wife somewhere is just, I'm like,
1: oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. and so, like women are just parasitic to the men.
0: Yeah.
2: Now, the so the crazy thing is though that they're calling, or I, I shouldn't use a language like that, but I mean, the, the thing here is they're using the Bible. They're saying yes. that, men are to be benevolent leaders or or whatever to women. Mm-hmm. They're saying this is biblical. Yeah. Can you give us, again, like this is long, books. When you wrote a book, and of course, yes. we want everyone listening to this to go and get Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's a, it's a great book. And, uh, but can you give us uh, an answer that sort of fits here? What does the Bible actually say about manhood uh, and womanhood?
1: Yeah. That is a couple books. But um, yeah, I I believe that, you know, one thing that's so attractive about CBMW is that um, they want, you know, when they use this word complementarity, and it's really a beautiful word. Um, You know, I think that we want to know, uh, what is it that's distinct about men and women? You know, what's beautiful about it? How do we Complement one another, complete one another, you know and and all these things. And so I think that that is a mission that we all have that we all want. you know we all desire to know. and I, you you see that in the beginning of scripture um, when you know you see Adam being created first, and they like to say, Adam's created first, that means he's the leader, and she needs to submit to him. But um, I think there's a different story being told there with Adam being created. Um, He's created first, and he's created from the dirt. Unlike Eve, unlike woman, who is not created from the dirt, um, and when she's created, Adam has to die. (laughs) I mean, he's put down, right? Um, He's put down, and she's taken from him. And the word used in... um, In Hebrew there, it isn't rib, it's like wall, side. Mm -hmm. And and, and when that word's used throughout the Old Testament, it's always used to, or almost always used to talk about uh, sacred temple construction. Mm -hmm. So there's a story being told here, right? So Eve, or woman, I should say, is created second. She's not created from the dirt. And I think that she is telling a story of where we're headed. You know, she is, you know, we are to behold the bride and she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And we see the gospel story already in this picture because Christ, you know, we see the church flowing from the side of Christ, really, his mm-hmm. bride. And so I think that she is a, a bit of an eschatological marker, if I can use a big word. Um, but. Adam is beholding you know, what the end of his probation is to lead him, him and her to, and that is as the bride of Christ. And so I think that there is, you know, he's kind of showing the means and she's showing the end in that sense, and, and that there will be this unity of heaven and earth. And, and it's all going forward that way. And so you see the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. And you see the bride, Zion, holy you know, realm, Coming down from heaven, from God, um, and in the middle of the Bible, you have the Song of Songs, which is all about this marriage. Um, you've got the major prophets: Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're all talking in terms of the spousal love of God. Um, and then Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding. So, and then you ha- you've got Paul saying that you know this is the great mystery that we see in the creation of man and woman. So I think our bodies tell a story and I think it's beautiful, but I don't think that it's something that's prescriptive in the sense of you know some kind of hierarchy or um, you know the way that CBMW has kind of flat-footed it all, like they've taken all the beauty out of it and um, instead turn it into something that Jesus says, let's not think like the world when it comes to power and authority, that's not my kingdom, you know? So I think that there's a lot of confusion going on there with sexuality for them.
2: So, so just to try and sum that up quickly, that was an awesome answer. You just took us through like (laughs) scads of of amazing That
1: was really my sexual reformation post. Yeah. Okay. So
2: what you're saying is, you know, Adam being created first has nothing to do with a man being in charge of a woman. Right. That there's a bigger picture here of Jesus in the church.
1: Yeah, and now, see something that's like he's the first to sacrifice, the first to love, the first to give. That's the picture.
2: Right. Now, for someone who believes these, you know, complementarianism, which is a beautiful word, but essentially is being used to put men as leaders above women, uh, mm-hmm. not mutual uh, right. role there. Uh, what would you say to someone who then, you know, goes to the new Testament Ephesians says, okay, just in the same way that Jesus is in charge of the church. So the man is in charge of the woman. Like, how would you respond to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that needs to be the way that we look at it to begin with, but even when you, look, I agree, yeah, when you look at the way that Jesus, let's even use the word rules, <laughs> his church, um, Look at us. We have complete freedom. <laughs> he we are responsible to make our own decisions. Hmm. Um so it, he he doesn't come down and 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 tell us the strict thing that we have to do and enforce us into it, right? Um he even in our prayer life, how we would wish sometimes that he would just tell us what to do, right? But yeah. that's not the way that he would have us to work. He would have us to interdependently, you know, to pray to him. To bear our hearts before Him, to know His Word well, but not on our own. To read it together as a church, to have um, fellowship with other Christians, with wise Christians, to be talking with them about our lives, to be uh, sharing our struggles and praying for one another, and then to use one another's minds and lives embodied together um, to then come to where we think the Lord's will is leading us. Right, uh, so. And I think that, you know, that's just so interesting, too, in the way scripture is written, in the way it was put together. And, and that's something I tried to focus on in the first third of Recovering is that, you know, woman is kind of backgrounded at first in scripture and definitely in such a patriarchal society. And, um, you know, you've got the, the radical biblical feminist saying that the Bible is this patriarchal construction put together by the most powerful men, Right. And we balk at that. No, no, it's, that's not how scripture is. But I think that so many of the resources coming from complementarianism actually is telling us that very thing, that um, the Bible is so male-centered, so androcentric centric that we do need uh, men to help us learn, you know, uh, and that to help us understand what it really means mm-hmm. and all these things. Um, but you don't see that actually in scripture, in such a patriarchal society. It is amazing to look how the woman's voice functions. And I, I built off of Richard Balcom's work in Gospel Women, uh, his book called Gospel Women, where he talks about the female voice and scripture functioning as what he calls a gynocentric interruption. What a fun phrase to use. And my husband, whenever I use big words that he thinks, you know, don't go in normal conversation loves to then continue using them in wrong ways, right? <laughs> wrong funny ways throughout the day, but I had a lot of fun with that one. But um, Gynocentric interruption is is this this female voice interrupting, disrupting you know the male voice, and it tells what he says a story behind the story. Um, it makes visible the invisible. so he kind of goes through the book of Ruth showing how mm. showing how um we get something in Ruth that we wouldn't get if it was told in the male voice. It's told with right. a female perspective and yeah, yeah. It's even emphasized at the end of Ruth, because at the end of Ruth, you have this patrilineal genealogy kind of slapped on, you know, like it, it's just really abruptly changes gears at the end. And he believes that's to show us that's what we would have gotten through the male voice, but we've gotten something different through the female voice. And it's amazing when you uh, begin to think of it that way, and you go back in scripture, and you see where the woman's voice comes in, like Shifra and Pua, you know, or, or Deborah or Halda and uh, Tamar. And you're like, oh, man, yeah, we are really seeing something else in these voices. And it's truly amazing that they're even in there, in this uh, patriarchal culture. You know, what we're learning is that as scripture was being put together, as it was being written Women were also tradents of the faith. And a tradent is somebody who orally passes down the tradition. And so women's voices, as well as men's voices, were tradents of the faith. And the women's voices were put in. And I just think that's, it just blows my mind how beautifully that, that mm-hmm. is.
0: I love that. Now, that, that actually reminds me a little bit about uh, Beth allison Barr. In her book, uh, mm. the make the making of biblical womanhood, and one of the points that she makes in there is about it, and it goes along with what you just said about patriarchy. Scripture is not patriarchal because that's that was the view of the writer. It it is that way because scripture is written in a patriarchal society, yes. right? And then and so I've done a lot of work even on Ephesians five, and what I found there was that. On the surface, it seemed it seemed like Paul is using patriarchal language, but he's actually using that language in order to subvert it. And so, yes. it kind of, it, it's kind of similar to what you're saying about the female mm-hmm. voice and the male voice. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it is. It is, and I think that's why I really like um, that term, gynocentric interruption, because it is a bit of it. It's disrupting, right? And in yeah. one interview I was doing, someone said you know, do you really want to call the the woman's voice an interruption? Like, isn't that a bad thing? And, you know, I thought about it for a second and I thought, well, the gospel does that, you know, the gospel disrupts us. It interrupts us, it, but it's good news. So, um, you know, so often, yeah, I think hope itself is disruptive. So, um, I, that's I, I like that you use that word subversive too. I do think that it's like that in a lot of the ways. And, and we do have, um, To me, the fact that the woman's voice is working that way in scripture is all the more evidence of the value of it in such a patriarchal culture.
2: So if if we listened, if we understood how truly patriarchal, how male-centered ancient culture is, and then if we read the Bible, we would actually get something different than what we are getting. We would actually see, wow, women are really coming through here. God's got a bit of an agenda Mm-hmm. But because we view it now from where we are, we almost miss that and think, oh, God must be patriarchal because we're viewing it from this other, other place. Right. Um,
1: I mean, yeah, it's actually divinely written. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Do, to kind of bring this into more, uh, you know, into our sort of practical everyday lives and stuff, what are some of the negative real world effects? Hmm of what is being called biblical manhood and womanhood, but it isn't actually biblical manhood and womanhood. I mean, that title is a, it's a genius title because it makes it mm-hmm. see who doesn't want biblical anything, right? right. but it's not really biblical manhood or mm-hmm. womanhood, but the people who are defining that as men are the benevolent leaders of <laughs> women. Uh, what are the negative real world consequences you see of that?
1: right i mean first of all i think it hurts men you know and and that's a lot of pressure to put on a man to say that you know this True. is all on you you know uh, all the leadership stuff is all on you yeah. any failures then that's on you um so i think that you know first i just want to say that it's harmful for men uh and it's very one dimensional uh and you see what uh even still today how we are having so many issues with what is masculine and what is feminine because you, we've turned it into this one dimensional character. Right. And we've seen the harm that that's done. Um, but secondly, uh, it, it's really led to, it, I would just go, go as far as to say it, it dehumanizes women. Um, Diane Langberg, uh, she's, a, a renowned expert, international expert on abuse and spiritual abuse. And, you know, she talks about what what every person needs, you know, in their personhood. And and voice is one of those things, wow. an agency. yeah,
3: um,
1: and, and so both of those things, out of the three things, are taken from women, uh, voice and agency. Um, so that dehumanizes us. Um, you've even got them changing scripture interpre- uh scripture translation i'm sorry right in the beginning of genesis where it says and you know um during when the fall when you're seeing the pronouncement of the fall and god says to a woman that her desire will be toward her husband and he will rule over her um they change that word for toward to contrary <laughs> uh. your desire will be contrary to your husband and he must rule over you so they, they put in this conflict uh, right there by changing that word. Um, and, and that all came from an article written by a woman, uh, Susan Foe uh, back in the seventies, I believe. And it was like an eight page journal article, which just changed the way that they have now translated scripture. Um, so how do you view women then? How do you view the rest of the women that you read in the Bible? From Yvonne, how do you view women in your church? How do you view your neighbor women? How do you view your wife, your coworkers? You're seeing somebody who is opposed to you, who's a threat to you, who you have to assert your masculine uh, authority over.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, I think that some, a lot of men who believe this, you know, want to be benevolent, but uh, I think they're missing the beauty of the women in their life and then sadly there have been so many cases of abuse from this Mm -hmm. so many i mean you just look right now the southern baptist convention is being Mm -hmm. federally investigated over abuse and cover up from its leaders um you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases um but we it's not just them you know it's everywhere and even with my own, um, you know, when this book came out, there were uh, church officers in my denomination and other reform denominations who were very unhappy about the book. And rather than write, you know, uh, critiques about the book, they, they got together as a group and on Facebook and were saying horrible, horrible things, misogynistic things, um, plotting uh calling ahead of my speaking engagements, warning them, guard your families and your churches. And uh, you're inviting danger and and false teaching into your church. Um, They were plotting to sabotage my Amazon page in which they were able, when my last book came up, to have Amazon not accept reviews for a while because they saw how many were uh, fat. Like they saw that I was being targeted. And so you had to be like, verified Amazon purchase to even be able to leave a review. And so it totally limited the number of reviews I got. Um, They, I mean, they were saying, you know, calling me like Jezebel and if her husband loved her, he would shut her up if he really loved her. Um, They were calling me some, you know, much more vile things, making memes of me as like a transvestite woman, you know, changing my book cover to make it look sexual Um, anyway, these were officers in the church. These are pastors and elders. So you expect your jerks on the internet, right? Uh, But this was a different story. So when I came forward wanting something to be done ecclesially, like in the church courts, I found I had no voice. Men had to step in and do it for me. And there were men who saw this as t- as the horror that it was, but um, I, w- I went through a two year process in the mm-hmm. church courts to where everything got reduced to one man. I mean, there were sermons preached about me. There were articles written about me being the leader of the feminist army, the general, and uh, then the next day he preached a sermon on how God's perfect hatred against feminism You know, because that's what you get from Psalm 139, (laughs) apparently. Um, And, you know, just all this, so many, so much harm done to me by presbytery meetings. It all got reduced to a punishment for one thing that I was called, which was a raging wolf. And, And they called another woman a raging wolf. And at a presbytery meeting, that was the only thing. And, and they, you know, at first just got a slap on the wrist for it. So uh, the fact that preachers are allowed to say these things mm-hmm. and treat women this way and be so misogynistic um, and they're allowed to lead congregations, what do you think's happening in there? What do you okay. think's happening in those churches? Yeah. Um, it's horrifying.
0: Wow. Yeah, you know, I told you earlier, kind of when when we were still offline, um, that I've been following you on Twitter for some time, and you know, I've I've watched some of this abuse happening, and just very very painful to watch. So mm-hmm. this is it's uh. Thank well, you for my children tend to see all that.
1: You know, it was terrible. Hmm. Um, I never, you know, I have pretty tough skin. I logically know how ridiculous all this is, but um. You know, I had to face it from one of my own elders in my church. Uh, he was in that group and I didn't know it. Um, so it just rocked my world. You know, I, I started experiencing the effects of trauma in my body and I didn't even know what was happening, you know, because I'd never gone through something like that before.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: um, they say that spiritual abuse is is right up there with sexual abuse because it's like the very people that you're going to for help and for spiritual guidance and to speak you know, represent God, (laughs) um, are the ones that are harming you. Yeah. So it it is it's really truly awful. And and in that, and and I was public about the I was documenting the public parts of this, not the personal parts so much, Mm -hmm. but um just the trials and the meetings and things like that. And um which were horrible enough, but then I start getting the letters, you know, from so many people uh, who are going through much worse, much worse and have no voice you know and then i it it, it was exposed to me then how the system itself mm. um, protects abusers and silences women
2: yeah you know it's it's interesting to me even as you're sharing this and thanks thanks amy so much for sharing uh, this with us uh it's it uh the whole even if someone because there'll be lots of people out there that'll be like yeah but That's not how most of us think, but, but even if we accept that to be true, let's, let's say that most people in that biblical manhood and womanhood, which will, I will again qualify as it Mm -hmm. it isn't biblical, but this idea that men need to be in charge of women, even if you repeat over and over again, yes, but men and women are equal in value and, and we love just like Christ loves. The moment you take a group of people and you put them under enroll, even if you say verbally you just say over and over again we're equal in value it's yeah. just a different role. but one of the roles is underneath yeah you create a situation where a group of people no no regardless of how good you think your motives are you have taken away their voice you have taken away their recourse and you've created an environment where abuse is going to happen like yeah. you just it just i mean yeah.
1: i i think abuse happens in egalitarian churches as well oh, absolutely. but um, yeah it's just a hotbed and And what I would say, too, is I think the most painful part were the good guys. (laughs) The ones Mm -hmm. who uh, saw the abuse as bad, who don't want that to be, you know, the picture of complementarianism, and yet weren't willing to do what they, they say benevolent leadership is. Yeah. And that is to speak up and, and, and truly risk their own jobs or truly risk, you know, whatever it is, their own relationships, um, to speak mm-hmm. out against the abuse. And so, you know, in a, in a way that does something, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was just complete, you know, I, there, w- there were a group of men trying to help me, you know? Um, and, and the crazy part is all my writing was about discipleship. It wasn't even about who can preach mm-hmm. or who can be an elder the writing was about just our agency as disciples in the church. Um, and that was what was so threatening, you know, women yeah. as disciples. Um, but, you know, I could write a book that was completely within the bounds of the confessions of the church. I was a denomination of, yeah. and yet be treated like that. And anybody who was silent or didn't, you know, who stayed, you know, I think even in that, is, is complicit in ways you're giving pathways as, as Wade uh, Mullen says that it, it, it gives like safe passageway to lots mm. or uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said uh, leniency to the dishonest is, is cruelty to mm. those who they're abusing, you know? Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. just,
2: while we're on this topic, I'd like to go back right at the beginning of this conversation. You talked about a story where you leave this conference, you're in a dark alley of a big city. <laughs> you're with yeah. a bunch of Christian guy friends. Yes, and they let you walk to your car a couple blocks away. Which, of course, as we can all imagine, is not a comfortable. Wouldn't even be comfortable for you know a single guy probably to do.
1: Yeah, night nice.
2: But you could could you maybe I I don't know if everybody is totally familiar with the with the Billy Graham rule or some of those things. Yeah, can you explain to us? Kind of the specifics of why something like that happened right. to you, okay, and yeah.
1: So the Billy Graham role is Billy Graham. You know, he's traveling all the time. He was barely home, um, and so he got together with some friends. As the story goes, that you know he wanted accountability. They wanted accountability to um, stay virtuous in, in these environments, and so one of the things that he decided was that he would not meet with a woman alone. Um, and so this became dubbed as the Billy Graham rule. But then it got blown even more out of proportion to where like men don't even, which Billy Graham broke his own rule to meet with Hillary Clinton, by the way.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and she convinced him that they were going to a public place, you know, to cause he said he wouldn't have a meal with a woman either. And she convinced him, like, you know, this is a public restaurant, like, what's going to happen, you know? And, and so he agreed to it. But um, this was something that he did as a private conviction on his own. Um, you know, whether or not we agree or disagree with it, I can see how he's a, a leader who is exposed to more temptation, probably. Um, and he's trying to be godly in the way that he thought was the best way to do it. It wasn't something he imposed on other men. Um, And yet, not only other Christian leaders, male leaders, but even now, like, just regular guys in the church have taken on this rule, this Billy Graham rule, and, like, magnified it to be, like, yeah, you can't even um, have a coffee at the coffee shop with a woman. Or, like, I've spoken to so many women in seminary who their professor won't meet with them like he does. you're supposed to get with your money, you know, how you have uh, a meeting, a consultation, like won't meet with them because of the Billy Graham rule or are women in a Christian parent church organizations who miss out on the um, you know, the meetings where things get discussed because it's like over lunch, you know, and they don't get invited Um, things like this uh, that it gets twisted into. And then, you know, me, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, they're talking about male chivalry all the time and risking their lives for women. Right. And, but, yet-
2: but you can walk to your car by yourself. Cause I can't, I can't drive you to your car. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was offered an because, umbrella. Because then we'd
2: be, Oh, I was like, you yeah, were offered an umbrella.
1: I didn't even want them to feel like they've done anything good, you know, because i was like, no, I'm just going to walk in the rain because wow. this is what you're. Yeah. Wow.
2: It's interesting how uh, one little story like that can just take on a life of its Of its own.
1: Yes. And I think, it. you know, I'm sure that there's good intentions, a lot lot of good intentions behind it. But let's just take this ride, for example. This wasn't because these men thought that they were going to be tempted sexually by me in the car to, you know, on their way to to give me a ride to my car in two, two blocks. It's about appearances. It's about their reputation. Yeah. And so many women see that, you know. That's what it's about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. So Amy, uh, we want to maybe shift again. And, and the question that Chris just asked now is the perfect segue, because we want to kind of shift from talking about biblical uh, biblical manhood or biblical womanhood to more the application of what does that actually look like in the siblingship the the relationship between brothers and sisters in church. And maybe just to kind of, uh, there's a bit of a provocative question I want to ask. And, and, this question actually originally came from another podcast that, that you were in, I think it was last year, you were in a podcast show called uh, The Split Frame of Reference, which is hosted by a good friend of mine, uh, the the couple by the name of uh, Nick and Allison Quint, mm-hmm. wonderful couple, and yeah, yeah. Just, just a shout out to them, but anyway, yep. <laughs> in that conversation, you talked very much a similar topic, and I really... I will never forget something that Nick mentioned. He said something something like this. Before the fall in Genesis, there was no need for men's ministries and women's ministries in the church. Now, I love that question because it's provocative <laughs> and it makes you think. But I'm curious, maybe could you comment on that? What sure. do you think
1: about that? Um you know, in my book, I talk about, there. I think that there is value in having like women get together and, and talk about the word together or pray together and, and for men to do the same. Like, I don't think we should not do those things, but we have so separated the men and the women in the church. And really, uh, the women have been sidearmed. You know, you do your own thing over here while we do the important uh, theology leading and we're the ones who get to contribute to the heart of the conversation in the church. And so I think that's what Nick was speaking into more. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, Eve was a compliment to Adam in the true sense, like a necessary ally. That word helper, I think is a bad translation now too, because it implies some kind of subordination in our language. Mm -hmm. And that that Hebrew word is used to to describe God as an ally to Israel and as a savior to them Mm -hmm. over and over again. And it's used with military language a lot of the time in the Psalms. So um, side by side, shoulder to shoulder are Adam and Eve here with their mission. And I think that is how we are to view one another now um, in the church. And I think that... uh, As siblings, Paul uses this word, siblingship, over and over to talk about, and we see it in our, a lot of our translations, it'll say brothers, but it really means from the same womb. So some translations like the Christian standard Bible has put in brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, and it makes a difference to me as a woman to see that, you know, Uh but uh, Paul uses this language so much way more than the other like metaphors that he uses like body of Christ or, or church even, um, he's always using this brother and sister language. And, um, so what I wanted to do and why can't we be friends and then extend that in recovering is to really talk about, um, the value of promoting one another's holiness as brothers and sisters in the church, you know, holistically. And, um, that means we can't avoid one another <laughs> and you know uh in, in my why can't we be friends book the the subtitle is avoidance is not purity you know we don't grow by avoiding um we mm. actually grow by relating in a godly way and by viewing one another in a godly way and yeah. and so how we see one another and and how we uh think of our own responsibility and privileges in the church towards one another that should inform our decisions that we make in our relationships and and who's safe and who isn't in, and things like that. Um, And that should be, you know, the way that we can help one another to grow in a, in a godly love and a brotherly and a sisterly kind of love that, um, you know, Paul tells us to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters what does that mean? Yeah. You know, and I think that we see such a picture of that even at the end of Romans and Romans 16, um, you know, which used to be something I would read over really quickly because it's just his kind of greetings to everyone in the church in, in Rome. But uh, there are so many women named in there. And, and what you're really getting is a snapshot, a picture of the ministry, all that theology he's talking about in Romans. You see it in action in his greetings and he's using words to describe these women that he uses throughout the New Testament to, to describe ministers of yeah. the gospel who are shoulder to shoulder with him, um, with him and with the others. So I think that we do have some really beautiful pictures of brother and sisterhood, um, what I call sacred siblingship yeah. in in the New Testament.
2: Oh wow! This time is has flown by, Amy. This is so good. I have just one more thought question here. I love okay. that line. I hope all of our listeners: purity is not avoidance. That is really that's gold. I wonder, as as you said, I was just kind of letting that sink in here. The last the last minute, uh, I, I wonder if some Christians are afraid of attraction, perhaps.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like sure. there's this
2: biological reality like the vision mm-hmm. you're casting here of siblingship is so beautiful. What what would you say to that? It yeah maybe there's a fear of attraction and I don't know. I'll just leave it there. What would you yeah, say to that?
1: I mean and, and you know that's something that we should obviously take seriously. You know, you don't stop being attracted to others once you get married. Um and obviously we don't want affairs or or even lustful thinking, right? Um, but Along those lines of avoidance isn't purity. What what purity is, is it's directing and orienting our desires in a holy way. And that isn't even poured into your husband or wife first. Um, That isn't even poured into like abstinence first. That's our desire first goes vertically to God. This is what it's all going towards, you know, and then from him, through him, to him. And so then we can look at others um, in a more godly way, and but then we can also be honest. I think, and this is something like, for one thing, as Christians, we come at each other so much, you know, uh, over yeah. over sin issues. Um, but if if we could be honest and not just, you know, I don't think you should be an open book like I'm attracted to this person or I'm attracted to that yeah. person, but <laughs> with ourselves before God, you know, to say why am I having why am I why am I having this attraction? I wonder, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. because. It, it usually isn't because, oh, I just want to have sex with them. You know, yeah. there's a reason there's there's a reason our desires go the way they go. So yeah. I think we can take that stuff to God and in prayer and repentance, but yeah. re- repentance and its true meaning too of a turning like, OK, I need to orient my desires in a holy way. And this is a practice and an exercise that we should all be doing all the time anyway. Um, avoiding can actually make them be more pent up and worse. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we start viewing women as threats or men as threats. And instead we can actually take this before God and say, okay, what, you know, I don't want to have this feeling. I want to kind of examine it a little bit and work through it then, and then recommit yourself to who you really are, (laughs) who you're made for. And, you know, I think that that's much more beautiful and that's, that's, what purity is, is having our affections um, rightly oriented.
0: Yeah. I, you know what, that is just so spot on. And it actually reminds me of what uh, Sheila Gregoire, I think that's how she, Sheila Gregoire in her book, well, I mean, in in her articles and podcasts, she talks a lot about how um, noticing is not lusting. Right. And uh, that, that to me was very, very profound because I grew up in the purity culture Yeah. I you know, I I was the guy who got the breakaway magazines in the mail and I read them Mm -hmm. and I read all their every young man's battle books. (laughs) And bounce your (laughs) eyes. Yeah Yeah. (laughs) bounce your eyes. That's exactly where I'm going with that because in Mm those in those books it's all about avoidance. It's all about if you notice it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it bouncing your eyes all the time you actually why your body to see the opposite sex as a threat? Well, yes. um, I'm just wondering, maybe just to kind of wrap up our conversation here. I'm wondering what would you say to Christian boys and men who continually wrestle with seeing the opposite sex as a threat, who continually mm-hmm. see their sisters as a temptress? how How can they yeah. rewire their minds to see their the other as a sister in Christ? Yeah, I
1: um. Well, I would say read Sheila Gregore (laughs) for one thing. Um, I really think that she helps to humanize women and and it's so common sense and so well researched. Um, That's really a question that I try to unpack in why can't we be friends? And I have a whole chapter on purity, which Mm. I think, uh, you know, I think is a helpful chapter to read because ha- it's, it's changing the way that you think. I mean, there's a lot that we have to unlearn that's been taught to us in the church, unfortunately, you know? And I think that Sheila does such a good job at that. Um, but um, I'm, she does it at a very uh, practical uh, and researched level, which is, you know, very thorough. Um, and I do it at a theological, you know, I do the theological, biblical theological angle of it too. So I think our work does go well together. But and also, to surround yourself with people in, in good marriages or, or healthy, single, mature people, um, you need good models and examples around you. And I, I also you know, would like to even plug some authors like Kurt Thompson, who is in um, interpersonal neurobiology. You know, because it is a rewiring and he doesn't focus on that aspect of sexuality and purity culture. But I think a lot of his like he has a, a book on oh gosh, the soul of desire. And he has one on the soul of shame. And I think that um, even those even though they don't hit, you know, specifically purity culture type stuff, I think it, it, it gives you a bigger picture even of how God has designed our brains and our minds, which aren't the same thing, to work. And, and, and how they're designed to do that interpersonally too. And so he does something called confessional communities and he talk he does have a section in there where he talks about the importance of having men and women in there together. And he even gives an example of a man working through attraction to, Mm -hmm. with a woman in the group. And I thought it was very helpful. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that there's more good resources coming out too, because, uh, there are so many damaging Mm -hmm. ones, sadly Mm -hmm. in the church. Thank you.
0: Okay, just one one more question, and then Chris, you can wrap it up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so,
1: uh, we just keep so... trying to
2: squeeze
3: as much as we can out of this.
0: <laughs> so there's, there's lots of the the, the the last question I asked kind of targeted uh, men and young boys. Now mm-hmm. I want to turn this around, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the young woman, the young mm-hmm. teenage girl in in a church setting, who is feeling the uh, the desire to learn theology to. Go to college someday to I get a degree in pastoral, uh, learn a pastoral degree or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But but they feel like they don't have the space to actually cultivate that gift. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you from maybe from your heart, how would you what would you say to that girl, that young woman?
1: Honestly, at this point, I would say go somewhere else. (laughs) Go where you are looked at as an ember to be blown into, you know, and given uh, encouragement to grow. You know, if, if, if someone has a passion to learn more about God, if someone has a passion to serve him at a higher level, oh my goodness, find where you can go, you know, because that is a gift, you know, you are a gift. Yeah. And I hate to be a person. you know, I never want to be someone who says leave your church, but um, I, there's going to be a lot of pain Staying in a situation like that.
2: Yeah. Thank you. And it's either going to catch you years down the road with some regrets. Right. Or you're going to experience it in the short term if you if you leave.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the question is, would you want your daughter there?
0: Yeah.
2: Yep. That is the right question. Well, Amy, this has been amazing. I think a couple of uh, practical things I took out of the second half of this is... Um, when men are put in roles above women and when Mm -hmm. purity is emphasized as avoidance, you see some of these issues where actually men can't even protect women. Like in the issue with you in an alley, we end up in situations where female students can't get help from a male professor. Mm -hmm. Um, We end up in, in places where women are separated from men you know, the men are getting the meat and then the women's ministry, will talk about the homemaking. And and again, there's, it's fine for us to have men's ministries and women's ministries. We do some of that here at Crossview as well, but I think we have to be so careful that we're not just kind of shunting the women off. So lots that we have learned here, Amy, Mm -hmm. and we just so appreciate you taking the time for a, For some, uh, just some small potatoes up here in uh, Canada, in the middle.
1: (laughs) I I love that. I love your excitement for it all. Mm. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah.
1: And I'm glad to hear that how you're incorporating that in your own church.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, we'll have to talk to you again sometime because you have some other books that got us very interested here. So until next time, (laughs)
0: thanks,
2: (laughs) thanks again. Thanks
1: for having me. All right, that is
0: it for another fun conversation. Make sure you come back again in two weeks for our next episode. And again, if this show has been one that you have enjoyed and you are excited about, please help us out by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast as future episodes are released. And if you have any questions at all about anything that has been said in these episodes, please let us know at OutsideTheWall at CrossFuture.ca. Thank you, and we'll see you again.